It is good to be here. It is good to worship together. We're in Mark chapter 14 today. And we're going to be looking at verses 43 to 72. A rather big passage, but that's okay. <clears throat> it was a, a really, really big deal. We had been looking forward to it for quite some time. We had been waiting for it. We had been anticipating it. We had endured the, the pain and suffering of packing as a family of, I think there were six or seven in my family at that point. We had suffered the agonizing car ride with far too few rest stops. And then we stood there on the side of the road as we watched Dad hike off to who knows where to try to track down a mechanic to see what was wrong with our 15-passenger van. Why had this thing given up the ghost? And then, of course, there were those countless are we there yet moments, right, over and over and over again until our throats just about ran dry. And then we pulled off, finally pulled off into that retreat center where, would we be, where we would be staying, only to discover that our home away from home, this cabin we were going to be staying at, was, was a one-bedroom cabin. and In fact, it was a, a one-room cabin. And we opened the door and were completely overpowered by the smell of the wet German shepherds that had spent the night there the previous night. And from that day forward, my brothers and I would know Dinky Creek now as Dinky Dump. Probably not a name that it deserves, but boy, we had a bad experience. What a letdown, an incredible letdown. This is our family vacation. Wow. You know, sometimes we experience letdowns in life, don't we? We experience them often in life, and sometimes we experience them because the place or the thing or the experience has just been talked up way too high, right? And they've told us it was going to be the best thing you have ever experienced. This is the best food. This is the greatest place. Not so much. That certainly was the case with that family vacation. But then there are other times, are there not, when we're really looking forward to something. We're looking forward to a vacation. We're looking forward to maybe it's a movie that's coming out or a book that's coming out. Whatever it may be, we're looking forward to it. But then someone beats us to it. <laughs> they beat us to it. They go experience it, and they let us know uh, not so good. It's, don't get excited. Don't get your hopes up. In fact, if you can't avoid it, don't even waste your money on this. It's not worth it. But I've had those moments, maybe you've had those moments too, where you are, you are not going to be shaken by those reports, right? You're going to press on. You are fully invested. You have been waiting. You've been hoping. You've been looking forward to this for so long. We're just going to go do it, and it's going to be great. Only to find out, oh, another letdown. You know, I think that's something that happens quite a bit in our lives, quite a bit in our lives, because by nature, we are people of hope. We, we long for hope, don't we? We gravitate towards hope. We're constantly looking out, watching for something that is going to bring us hope. We're, we're, we're longing for something that's brighter, something that's better, something that's more fulfilling, something that's going to last longer. 
And we get these ideas in our head that, that maybe this or, or, or maybe that. Maybe if we, we changed this or just added a touch of that or, or, we, or we got rid of something, maybe life would be better. You know, I think that when it comes to Jesus, sometimes we go down that same road. Could it be that sometimes we set ourselves up for letdown by Jesus because we've replaced what he's told us about this, this life that he has given us in his kingdom with what we want, what, with what we're hoping for. There in the garden on that fateful night, we have reason to believe that despite all of the warnings Despite all of the times that Jesus had told them, his disciples, why he came, what he came to accomplish, what was going to, to happen, that his disciples couldn't let go of the idea that the moment was coming where he was going to powerfully establish an earthly kingdom, a kingdom that would, that would make him and every, all of his followers look glorious and bring everyone else to their knees. As I said, we've got a rather long passage this morning, so rather than standing and reading it as we normally would do, we're just going to walk through it kind of step by step together. We begin in verse uh, 43. Actually, let's start in verse 41. It says this, and he came, this is Mark 14, 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Let's pause right there for just a moment. The disciples, they'd been with in Jesus in the garden throughout his uh, agonizing three sessions of prayer. And they had been struggling to keep their eyes open. They'd fallen asleep over and over and over again. And then he finally comes to them and tells them, it's enough. It's time. The hour has come. Something is about to happen. But what? What is about to happen? The betrayer is at hand? What does that actually mean? And what's that going to mean for us? Over dinner, just, just that night, Jesus had told them that he was going to be betrayed by one of his own, by one in the room. Do you remember Mark 14, 21 said this? He said this, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now think about what that might lead you to believe. There is a betrayer. He's going to betray Jesus, but it's going to be better for that man if he had not even been born. So what does that mean? The betrayer, maybe, maybe, maybe this is how we, Jesus' hand is going to be forced, and now he's going to show himself 
powerful in the world. Now he's going to make his move. He's going to unleash his power. He's going to put a stop to all the nonsense of these religious leaders and all the other powers that are standing in the, in the way of the establishment of his kingdom. Maybe this is that moment. It's going to take someone who comes to betray him. You know, when I was 10 years old, I remember uh, I, I was 10 or 12, somewhere in there, and I remember thinking about God's kingdom as I was staring out the window of one of those 15 passenger vans that we had. We had several. Looking out into the night sky and seeing the 10 freeway just aglow with, with the colors of red and yellow as the, the cars raced by. And I remember thinking, you know, if it's true that all this stuff that I'm hearing at church and in Sunday school, and my parents are telling me that Jesus is God and we are his people, then, then why is the world such a dark place? Why are all of these things happening, these terrible things that I'm starting to become aware of, why are these things happening? I mean, why doesn't God just let his people win? and make this world a better place, the good place that he wants it to be. And I think the disciples may have been waiting for that moment when Jesus would do just that. The hour had come. This could be it. Whatever sleepiness that had overcome those disciples, I think, quickly faded. Now they were alert. Now they were filled with adrenaline. Now they were ready to go. And Jesus got them and led them straight toward the band of people that were closing in on them. The torch-bearing, weapon-wielding, serious-looking people. Among them was Judas. We get it, Jesus. All of a sudden, we, we know. We know who the betrayer is. It's that guy. It's Judas walking now step in step with the people whom Jesus had encountered over and over and over again, and they had made themselves clearly uh, against who Jesus was. There were people that were sent by the chief priests by the scribes, by the elders. Not only that, there was a contingent of Roman soldiers. Now, one commentator I read uh, supposes that there could have been around 200 Roman soldiers there. This is probably a big group. What's going on here? Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, the people he was with. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him, that is Jesus, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, in our culture, that, that kind of a greeting, it's, it's a strange thing, it's an uncommon thing. You don't, don't do that unless you maybe come from overseas. In their culture, it was a very common thing. It was a normal thing. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign of affection. It wasn't uncommon to greet someone by kissing their hand, maybe even kissing their feet, maybe in the fringe of their garment. So it would have seemed rather normal for, for Judas to kiss Jesus. It would have been normal, except for the fact that they knew who, Jesus, or who Judas was now. They knew that he was the betrayer. And if he is the betrayer, then this kiss must have seemed like the most ultimate, the most despicable form of hypocrisy. How on earth could you do this? This was sinister. This was evil. 
boy, is this guy going to get it. It would be better for him if he had not even been born. I wouldn't be surprised if it led him to think thoughts just like that. On top of all of that, there was something else that may have led them to believe that Jesus was about to display his power, that this was the moment that he's finally going to come, step up and come right out and declare himself the king. We find it in John 18, 4. In John's account, it says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. Did you notice what Jesus said? He said, I am he. And that's when something astounding happens. Look on at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. How many people were falling to the ground? Why did they fall to the ground? What's going on here? Was this some incredible display of God's power? I actually think it is. I think the declaration of who Jesus is, who he was, unleashes some type of awesome power of God here, and it blows these people off of their feet. And that's when one of the disciples, emboldened, pulls out one of the two swords that the disciples had to defend themselves, pulls out one of the swords, and slashes, lashes out at the crowd. Mark writes, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Who was that guy? Who drew the sword? Well, John's gospel gives us names. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. You may have heard it said that Peter was either really bad with the sword or really good with a sword. Either he was going for this guy's head and just completely missed, or he was just giving him just a little warning here. What was going through Peter's head? Could he have been thinking, this is it. This is it. I got a sword, and I've got Jesus. I've got a sword, and I've got Jesus. I don't need anything more. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Finally, it's time for Jesus' troops, his disciples, his followers. We're going to rise up and bring Jesus' kingdom here on earth. Surely, Jesus is now going to unveil his glory. He's just going to strip away the outer covering like he did at the transfiguration on the mountaintop and display his majesty here. Remember, Peter was one of those guys that saw who Jesus really was. Everyone would just be completely blown away by who he was. Either they would fall down and worship him, or they'd just run in terror, or they would try to fight and would just hack him to pieces. Actually, we probably wouldn't. We'd probably just show our swords, and then Jesus' glory would just consume them all. It's going to be awesome. But no. It doesn't happen. Just as soon as that event with the sword happens, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is not the way, Peter. 
I, I came to follow the path that God the Father has put before me, and this is not the way. Luke adds, Luke twenty-two fifty-one. Jesus said, no more of this. We're done here. No more of this. And he touched his ear, Malchus' ear, and healed him. Reaches out. Touches this servant's wound. And immediately, where an ear was missing, a new ear forms in its place. And any progress that Peter may have thought that he made in establishing and securing Christ's earthly reign, it's quickly undone. In fact, the reverse happens. Jesus undoes it. I wonder if some of the moments that we consider to be setbacks in life are simply Jesus just pushing back so that it would not be our plans that advance. but God's plans. How embarrassing that must have been for Peter. Can you imagine? Putting your place immediately? How confusing. How disillusioning. What would you have been thinking? What would you have been feeling were you in his place? Mark goes on in verse 48. Jesus said to them, that is the, his, his would-be captors, have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, his disciples, left him and fled. Speaking to his captors, Jesus makes it clear, you don't need these swords. You don't need these torches. You don't need these clubs. You don't need anything. You had opportunity time and time and time again to arrest me, to take me captive. Why now? Are you afraid of the crowd out there? You pray to all these people that are here for Passover. You think that they're going to come up and rise against you? Is that what you think? And he publicly shamed them. They didn't need swords. They didn't need clubs. Of course, we know that Jesus didn't need any swords or clubs either, right? That if it was not part of his plan for them to take him, then they wouldn't stand a chance. Not a chance. He could have unveiled his glory. He could have called down angels, and they could have come to fight in his defense. But no, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he just calls them out, and he shames them, shames their cowardice. And it's clear to everyone, he's going to go willingly. And that's when fear must have washed over the disciples. Fear that if they stayed around, they were going to be taken captive too. It was obvious, Jesus isn't going to put up a fight for himself. This wasn't the glorious, victorious moment that they had expected. This was the unraveling of everything that they thought they were a part of building here. And for a brief moment, it seems like triumph is happening. A blow for freedom. When all they got was tremendous letdown. Have you been there? Maybe you've looked at the state of the country. Maybe you looked at the state of the American church. 
Maybe you looked at the state of your home or your bank account or your job or whatever and thought God was going to do something incredible here, something powerful here. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be the moment where he brings about his power and his kingdom in my life, in our country, wherever it may be, in such a way that it is just awesome. clear that his rule is taking over bit by bit. And like that little 10-year-old or 12-year-old looking out that, that van window, you're thinking, oh yes, maybe this is the point where God's people start to win. Maybe your hopes began to rise when you saw maybe some election go the way you wanted it to go, or the numbers began to indicate that the battle for Christ was slowly being won. Maybe things were looking like God was taking you down a path of blessing. At school, maybe at work, your finances were beginning to rise, your influence was expanding, your popularity increasing, but whatever it was was indicating to you that God was doing something powerful, all of a sudden collapses in a blazing mess. I think that's where the disciples were. I think that's why they all fled. The dream was dead. The kingdom crumbled. The letdown was just too much. Being with Jesus just wasn't safe. He's not, if he's not going to protect himself, how's he going to protect us? Verse 51 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, we've, we've tried to figure out who this guy was. Some people think it's Mark himself, the writer of, of this gospel. Maybe it was someone else. I, I believe that if it was important, we'd have his name here. We don't have his name here, so I don't think it's important who he was. But I think what it does tell us is just something of the, the immediacy of the moment and the horror of the moment. It's so great that it's all you can do to flee with your life. Doesn't matter if you're wearing anything. <laughs> Verse 55. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against him. 53 tells us that they took Jesus and they brought him to the home of the chief priests. And there they were going to question him. They were going to set up the case against him. The chief priests of the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, it says, even about this, their testimony did not agree. At this point, the onlookers must have just thought, oh, this is nothing's going to happen here. This isn't going to go anywhere. We've seen these religious leaders try to challenge Jesus over and over again, and they just got nothing. Nothing's going to stick. And that's when the two disciples that were watching, there were two. Peter followed, and it says there was another disciple that followed. And those guys who are sitting out there in the courtyard are standing there by the fire warming themselves. They saw another astonishing thing. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that 
these men testify against you. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You know, Jesus could have ended this whole thing right there. He could have put a stop to the whole thing right there. It wasn't going to use force to protect him. All he needed to do was give the right answer. He had given the right answer time and time and time again when he had interacted with these religious leaders, right? Often it ended in them being found out, them exposed, their pride, their selfishness, whatever it may be. They would often end up just leaving confused and embarrassed here. He could have put a stop to it. But as he told Peter in John 18, 11, he was there to drink the cup that the Father, God the Father, had prepared for him. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that his time had come. This is what he came for. This is the work that he was sent to accomplish. So he answers the high priest. He was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he answers him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, never made these these incredible claims, they they either don't know about this passage or they simply don't understand this passage. Over the course of his whole arrest, he has been saying over and over and over again, the Gospels will tell you, he says, I am over and over and over again. Again, it's an unapologetic, not so subtle allusion to the name God gave for himself to Moses when Moses was stood before the burning bush. There's a connection there, a very strong connection there. And what's more, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Taking everyone who knew anything about the sacred scriptures all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. The prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man was given to the one who was brought, the title Son of Man was given to the one who was brought before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Daniel writes this in Daniel 7.14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I wonder if when Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, I wonder if when Jesus said that, they hung their heads. What are you doing, Jesus? Don't you know you just signed your death sentence? If I was there standing there, I'd be, I'd, I'd be thinking, make it stop. What are you doing, We followed you for three years, and now before these guys, everyone knows these guys want to put you to death, and we're standing before them, and they have nothing on you, and now you give them exactly what they want. You know what they're going to do with this. And they did it. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This is the end. 
This is the end. Jesus had been questioned before. He had always managed to get out of it, get us out of it. We walked out standing tall. Everyone was impressed. What's happened this time? This time, the unshakable, invincible Jesus had fallen. What a letdown. What would have been going on inside of you at that moment? You wonder what was going on inside of Peter at that moment. And this is where we see a dramatic turnaround inside of Peter. We, we move from re reckless bravado to something else. From, from reckless, a type of reckless courage to now reckless fear. 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is, is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. What happened to this guy? What happened to Peter? How is it that one hour uh, earlier or so, you're ready to take off somebody's head with a sword? You're ready to rise up against who knows how many people and, 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 and attack them. And now you can't even own up to being counted among one of the guys who hung out with Jesus? What happened? You always did so many bold things, Peter. You're such a strong guy. You were the one that saw Jesus in all his glory, Peter. You were the one who said you'd, you'd, you'd give your life for Jesus. You'd never deny him. What happened? I'm not even sure if Peter could tell you in that moment. Some of us might be inclined to just shake our heads and go, Peter, come on, coward, how could you? And I don't doubt that there was an element of fear there that motivated this denial. But I also think that what happened here is the result of a man's expectations of what he thought was going to happen being so utterly rocked to their foundation, so totally, completely let down was Peter that I don't think he could do much, much else. Have you been there? State of shock because everything that you had hoped for, you had invested yourself in, you thought was going to happen, and it, the opposite happens. Or it goes the opposite direction. Peter denied Jesus for a third time. That's when something awesome happens. This is awesome. Mark 14, 72 says, Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered. I like the detail that Luke gives us in 2260. But, but Peter said, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
he remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and bitterly wept. Imagine the heartbreak. Washing, gushing over Peter as he, his eyes connected with Jesus' eyes. Crushed. No doubt in our minds that the bitter weeping had a lot to do with, with, with shame. I failed Jesus. I devoted three years of my life to him. I pledged my loyalty to him. Everyone looks at me as the strong guy here. And look what I just did. Crushing, overwhelming sense of guilt. And yet, at the same time, in that same weeping, I believe must have been a glorious glimmer of hope. And that's because when everything looked as if it was spinning, spiraling out of control, Jesus' words, remembering Jesus' words that he had spoken, those must have come reverberating loud and clear within his brain that Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus knew. And if it's true that he knew that it was going to happen, and it's true that he kept telling us that this was all part of the plan, then it's all part of the plan. And if it's true that it's all part of the plan, then even though everything seems like it's spinning out of control, maybe, just maybe, he is still in control. We thought that this was the end. We thought that this was all about failure. We thought that all was lost. What a horrible, tragic disappointment. And what an absolutely surprising, beautiful letdown. There's several places in the gospel where Jesus shares his mission with his disciples. He shares with them what's going to happen. And it's clear, they didn't understand it. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And he was teaching his disciples, saying them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Mark 10.33, Jesus goes on. It was, it was clear. They, they, they should have known what was coming. Jesus begins teaching his disciples again, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. In 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. What may have been unclear and confusing to some of his disciples in those moments. Some, maybe something they just didn't want to believe. They just, this, this can't be part of the plan. In that moment, the rooster crows. They make eye contact. And I would put money on it that all of that was beginning to shape, take shape in Peter's mind. As awful as that moment was, 
as big of a letdown as it would have been, it signaled the beginning of something more beautiful, something far more magnificent, something more glorious than anything that they could have expected before. It seems that they thought that Jesus was on the verge of setting up some type of earthly kingdom here, overthrowing Rome, overthrowing the religious structure, putting to shame all their enemies, all of that they longed for, they wanted. Remember, they were arguing with themselves not long after Jesus said what was going to happen. Who's going to be the best in the kingdom? Who's going to be first? Who's going to sit at your right hand, Jesus? This is what they were waiting for, this way, longing for. They were willing to fight for it. They had swords. Jesus, I'll die for you. Yes, let's do this. But as he stood before Pilate, just an hour or so later, after he was with the chief priests, Jesus would make it very, very clear that he did not come to establish a kingdom of this world. John 18 tells us this. Jesus answers Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. They would have been fighting. My kingdom is not of this world. You've been let down. I've been let down. I can't count the number of times I've been let down in life. You know, as we walk through life, we're tempted to build kingdoms. We dream dreams. We make plans. We rally allies. We jump on bandwagons. We fight for causes. Sometimes we're successful, and it's very encouraging. Sometimes we're not so successful. Sometimes the opposite happens. But if we've placed our trust in Jesus Christ, then we need to be reminded that the kingdom, the kingdom we are to be seeking is not a kingdom of this world. It's his kingdom. Heavenly kingdom. An eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom that was not established by swords or with clubs, or with clicks, or with signatures, or even votes, or social media posts. That's not how it got started. It was brought about as the Savior of the world handed himself over to death, and then victoriously rose from the grave. And it's a kingdom that you and I we enter into, we participate in as we place our trust in that Jesus and his life and victory over death now becomes our own. And we now testify to his excellencies to the weary world around us. As our kingdoms crumble and they fall, and we experience letdown after letdown in our lives. Like Peter, may we lock eyes with Jesus and remember that it's his kingdom that we should have been seeking all along. Amen.
Let's, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ. Were we in his place, we surely would have cut and run. We would have prayed, Father, I want my will. I do not want to go down this path, and I'm going to take the exit door. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who faithfully marched to the end, faithfully walked up to his captors, faithfully, even though when he had a way out before the chief priest, Lord, he did not take it, but instead confessed the truth, confessed himself to be the Messiah, to be the Son of Man. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. Lord, may this morning, as we remember that sacrifice that was made, Lord, may our hearts be encouraged. May they be filled with hope, even in the midst of a crazy, dark world we live in. May they be filled with hope as we are reminded that because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he made, and our faith in him, we have been brought into the kingdom of God, a lasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that will one day stand in glory when all other kingdoms have gone by the wayside. We thank you, Lord. We love you. Pray that you would be honored by this time. In Christ's name.